0: creating cultural awareness and understanding.
1: This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by
0: KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University.
1: This week on Culture Click, we are Ed's for Nerd Night with Maya Williams. Maya has spent most of her life in third world countries, helping as a writer and a human rights worker. We talked a lot about how she got into this line of work, what stories she has, and a little bit about her book. This is KJ with Maya Williams on Culture Click. So Maya, can you explain more about what you talked about tonight?
0: Uh, Sure. I basically recounted the work I've been doing for approximately 15 to 20 years, um, mainly focused on anti-imperial and anti-colonial work in the Middle East and Latin America. Uh, I lived in Palestine, Jordan, Egypt, Mexico, and I wrote a book about it. So then I talked about it.
1: Awesome. Uh, It was really interesting to hear some of that stuff. Um, So you kind of talked about it. Uh, What was it like living in the Middle East and all those different countries?
0: Yeah, um, it was the best of times and worst of times. Um, So on the one hand, uh, incredibly inspiring. Um, It's work. I'm really grateful I got to meet the people who I met. I got to work with the people who I met in Palestine in Jordan, in uh, Egypt, in Mexico, in Ecuador, and also in Standing Rock, I should say. I was also at Standing Rock, and I read about that as well. Um, And also really heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to watch revolutions and uprisings and people's resistance movements fall apart. It's it's heartbreaking to watch state-sponsored violence come back um, in a really visceral way. It's it's heartbreaking to watch people have their hearts broken. You know, people put their lives on the line for something and they, and they didn't always succeed. So it's really inspiring and it's really exhausting at the same time.
1: Understandable. Yeah, that would, that would be really heartbreaking to see in person like you had to do. Um, so can you kind of explain a little more
0: about the kind of work that you've done? Sure, that work has been really varied because it's been about two decades. So we're going to cover a lot of fields. So I work as a human rights worker, which means that I did human rights documentation of uh, human rights violations initially and in, um, human rights violations by the Israeli army against Palestinian civilians. Um, I also did accompaniment accompaniment work. And accompaniment work is basically where you as an outsider, or sometimes even as an insider into the conflict or situation, walk with a community or with people who are vulnerable under the threat of daily violence. And so you walk with them as a way to increase the space in which they're able to resist against that violence. So for instance, I walked with school children trying to get from their homes to their school, past uh, Israeli settlers and Israeli army who were threatening violence and, and in that way trying to increase the space in which that community could be able to resist against Israeli settler and Israeli violence. Their whole struggle has been around having children be allowed to walk to school safely. That's it. I swear to you guys, I'm not doing propaganda here. And the problem was is that the Israeli settlements in the Israeli army was either attacking them, firing shots at them, attacking the village, putting dead chickens into the well. This is a village at the time that had no running water or electricity. So they got all the water from well water, all the electricity from generators that, were, that ran about four hours during the day. And so my job, and the, with the people I worked with, was to walk with these kids from one village to another, which was basically about a mile walk, that ended up stretching out to about eight miles because they had to go the long way around through the desert mountains all the way through to get to school. They went that really long way because the Israeli settlements would not allow for them, By I mean, were really violent if they did, go the short path, which cut not through the Israeli settlement, but just past it, just walk past it. We walked with these kids and then uh, the Israeli army began to walk with these children and they're still doing that in 2019. Uh, This campaign first started in 2003 and 2004. I was also, this is why this, I was also a journalist and so I reported on, I was a journalist for a Palestinian organization, I was a journalist for Egyptian organizations, Uh, I was a journalist for Venezuelan organizations, I was also a midwife. Which is I didn't even get to that in the talk, but I was a midwife and a street medic as well. Um, yeah, that's what I did. That's
1: a lot of stuff that you've done, and it's actually funny because I'm studying to be a journalist. So that's really int- that's really cool. Um, so how did you kind of get into um, that kind of work and get the chance to go over to those different countries?
0: Um, because I'm stubborn, so. So I was in my early 20s, like I was 23 the first time I went to Palestine, and I mean I was 22 the first time I really kind of went out to do this kind of work, and basically as I said before, like uh, on stage, it, I, I really wanted to do human rights work and an accompaniment work and witnessing these sort of human rights abuses, and so I used Google. I I don't even know if Google was around. Maybe it was Alta Vista or something. I'm not quite sure about, but I I basically went online and kept looking and made a list of all the different kinds of organizations that were available, and I just kind of started going off the list, saying which ones I qualified for, and wrote them letters, and was like, hey, choose me. (laughs) And... A couple of them said yes. And so I said, okay, let's go. And I I think most of it honestly has to do with the fact that I was in a space in my life in which I felt like I I would just, I said, okay, I don't know. I don't have that much money. I have a little bit of background. It's not amazing. I don't have, like, the perfect resume. But I'm willing to put my life at risk in order to do this work. So let's go. Let's go. Awesome.
1: Yeah. And starting at such a young age, that's really cool. And something I'm, I'm 19 right now that I probably would have never been able to do that then. And even now, most likely. Um, so while you've been over in those different countries, um, what have you learned while being in those different villages and communities and all the different places that you've been?
0: Well, I think first and foremost I've learned that people resist against their own oppression. They always do. They always find a way to resist. Um, that it happens in both formal and informal ways, but people always organize and resist against it. Um, whether it's in prisons, whether it's under occupation, whether it's in a police state, whether it's under a monarchy, whether it's against like sexism in their own communities and villages, whether it's against religious oppression, you name it, people will find a way to resist against it. And that's a, that is one of the most beautiful things about being human on this planet is that as much as we are indoctrinated here in the US and in the West in general, that, oh, most people just kind of go with it. They didn't really fight against it. They just signed the treaty and let the land go. In reality, there's always been huge organized resistance against it. Sometimes they even managed to win, not usually, but, and that resistance has primarily been organized by women. It has primarily been organized by caretakers in part because they're thinking about their children's future in a way, because they're wondering what's going to look like in 20 years if I just say yes to this and bow my head, like what, I didn't bring my child into the world to just do this, but also because it's their work to like think about the community as a whole usually and not just their individual heroic selves. So, I mean, that's really been the, the principal learning. Um, the other learnings are also really important. Um. If a movement gets started, people will join in. If if there's 30, and also a movement normally is really fractured. There's usually a lot of different opinions. That To say that, oh, well, I talked to these people in this movement and they said this. That means nothing because there's 20 other opinions. So all of those things fall into play. And they're really important when we do research and reporting about movements that we're really understanding what the shape of a movement really looks like wow
1: that's that's really deep (laughs) really life learning lessons that you can learn from other people and stuff um so what kind of stories do you have
0: from where you have been uh a lot i wrote a book (laughs) it's 200 pages so I had a friend of mine who shall remain nameless in the story, but isn't in the book. Um, and he, I met him in 2010 in Cairo, and he was a filmmaker, uh, kind of like a college student filmmaker, um, kind of documentary, and really excellent eye. And whenever I hung out with him in 2010, and anytime I even brought up politics or anything like that, he'd always like, oh, "That's boring. Oh, that's boring." And I was like, "All right, cool, whatever. You know, we could talk about other things." And then. On January 25, 2011, I found out through mutual friends that he'd been arrested in the protest against the Egyptian government. And I was like, oh my God, like, what? Yes, he was arrested. And so I saw him a couple of days later. And I ran up to him and I gave him a hug. and like, are you okay? Because a lot of people got tortured and beaten during that time. He's like, yeah, I'm fine, no problem. And I was like, well, what were you doing? Because like I said before, he had no real interest. So like, what switched? And he said, look, I just want to see another president before I die. The president that he was protesting had been president for 32 years. And he was only like 23. So his whole life had had one president, one government. And I was just kind of like confused, like, well, why would you who don't care anything about politics, you're an artist, X, Y, and Z. And he was like, yeah, but we actually have a chance to win this time. And it turns out that when people have a chance to win, when they think that there might be some movement about, like, they will put their whole lives on the line for a chance to win. Most of the time that people don't make movements is because they don't think they can win it. And so I feel like a lot of the work that we do is really about you can win. Like, you just have to kind of convince people, like, this is possible. And the reason that he was convinced was because it had already happened in another country. So he was looking at the other country being like, oh, they did it, we can do it. And so I think that that was, and watching a movement go from basically 20 people to, um, like, 2 million people in two weeks, that's kind of like, I feel like there's a whole bunch of boys who kind of all went, oh, Okay.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm not a whole lot interested in politics, but I I would say if there's something that I truly believe in, I will go for it.
0: Oh, disculpe las molestias, esto es una revolución, which basically means, um, sorry for the inconveniences, but this is a revolution. And that's what Subcomandante Marcos actually said to a bunch of tourists on January 1st, 1994, when they were complaining about how their vacation had been messed up by this whole, like, armed revolution thing. And he was like, yo, I'm sorry, but this is a revolution. So it's also, wait, I'm going back for a second. It's also was basically my mantra when I was living in Egypt in, during the Revolutionary times, starting on January 25, 2011. OK, January 25, 2011, there was a dictator in Egypt called Mubarak. And uh, we got rid of him because we protested for two and a half weeks, we kicked out the police, and then we kicked him out as well, so no Mubarak.
1: Um, so you, you talked a little bit about your book. Can you talk a little bit more about what it's about and also mention the title of it? So self-promotion is always welcome.
0: So the book is called This is How We Survive, Revolutionary Mothering, War and Exile in the 21st Century. And it basically follows my time from 2003 to 2016 doing this kind of like activism, and I'm using air quotes for the word activism, for those of you who can't see me. Activism work, which, um, so it follows my time in Palestine in 2003 and 2004. It covers a bit of my time in the uh, Congo in 2005, and then looks at... Uh, I was back in Palestine in 2006. I was in Mexico in 2007 and 2008 in Chiapas working with the Zapatistas. Then I was in an Israeli prison for a few days. Didn't mention that, I know. And then I was in Egypt for five years before, during, and after the Egyptian revolution. Then I went to Berlin to escape the violence, the counter-revolution happening in Egypt, and then it skips ahead for two years and goes to being in Standing Rock in 2016. And so that's the that's the the plot, I guess. Like the and it basically looks at the ways that um, revolutionary movements form themselves, the way that they. Uh, develop in the way that ways that they fall apart and why that happens and what's the aftermath. A lot of it for me personally was about understanding how hard it is afterwards. Because after the movement fails, there's just a bunch of traumatized people walking around half zombie like with PTSD and war trauma without any mechanism to really deal with it. There's no governmental policy around what happens when you're like a global activist and you lose like there's nothing for that Um, and the other thing I look at a lot is the ways that women shape revolutions and the ways they shape uprisings and protest movements and push them forward and how essential that work is and that when we stop valuing women's uh, contributions to these movements is when our movements start to fail and so that's kind of the really broad Two hundred word, two hundred page version of it. Yeah,
1: awesome. Um, so, if they're interested, where
0: could they um, purchase the book, or how could they figure out more about it? So, Amazon.com is a place that is owned by uh, Jeff Bezos, and um, if you guys have heard of it, you can pick up the book there. Uh, if you're not for the Amazon.com life, and I respect that, you can go to PMPress.com. Or you can just Google the book itself and you'll, it'll come up. Like, I'm, I, I'm online, I exist. Um, so yeah, those are the primary ways. If you meet me in person and I have a copy, I will sell it to you. If you're hanging out in Winona and you go to chapter two books, it'll be there. Also, there's, it's like dotted in bookstores around the country. Like, I haven't been to all of them, but there's supposedly copies in bookstores. Um, yeah, so those, yeah, it's in the normal ways. Google is awesome, um, not the company, but the the act thereof, yeah
1: <laughs> awesome um do you, Do you actually have any plans on writing any more books?
0: Um, yeah, I'm working on a novel right now um about things. <laughs> okay, I don't want to talk about it because I feel like after I talk about it, I change my idea again, and I'm just like, I'm not. I've been working on this novel for the... So uh, I was really fortunate that I received a grant in order to work on the, the work last year, and I presented a portion of it uh, at the in November last year. So I'm continuing with that work. I'm also editor for... Um, I do freelance editing, and I was an editor for a magazine for a while, so there's that work always. Um, yeah, I just... Basically, I have an idea also in my head for another book that would be... a about it's about things as well. You know what? Yes. The answer to that question is yes. I do have other ideas and I'm working on them and I won't talk about them in public.
1: Okay. Alrighty. <laughs> we'll we'll keep that we'll keep it in mind and we'll just we'll just keep an eye out and right. see if you publish anything else. <laughs>
0: um why should this topic be more talked about? You know what's funny? I was, well, I, I am not someone who owns a television, but I do have the internet, obviously. And so I was on the internet today, and I realized that Michael Cohen had done testimony about the Trump administration. And there was so many people, I was on Twitter, whatever. But the point is, is that there was so many people who were just like, yes, like we, like the, this idea of the resistance and this idea of like resisting fascist elements that come into um, that have come into the U.S. government. And I don't wanna say it's solely because of, because of Trump, because it isn't, but let's just say like, it's nice for them to have a spokesperson. Um, and yet, at the same time, I, I deal with people who have no real idea about how resistance actually is formed and worked. What does it look like to take down an elected president? How do you actually do that? What level of commitment does it take from, the, from people And I've actually had the opportunity to see it happen in real time more than once. And so I feel like if people want to create a government that they actually believe in, they need to look at the movements that have been doing that for decades now. You know, like we're not, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, plus, the ancient Egyptians hadn't invented the wheel when they built the pyramids, but whatever. Um, that's not relevant to this conversation at all. Sorry. Um, but yeah, that's why I feel like this topic needs to talk about because one of the important things in in the whole idea is the fact that, like as I said before, without women's leadership, you don't get successful participation movements. And I think if you look at some of the organizing that's been happening is a lot of conflict about what women's leadership in the U.S. even should be. So when I look at local activism, when I look at people pushing for their senator or their state's person to make this comment or that comment, yeah, I want them to take a look at like, larger movements and what that looks like. I'm really, again, about the, the ways in which women and especially mothers have been the engines for the revolution. Let me just stop for a second and talk about that. Here's the real thing, right? Here's the tea. Mothers take care of you. Um, <laughs> And it's their skill. It's a thing that whether or not, and I don't mean this as an only people who are female who have biologically given birth to other people, but people whose primary work in life has been the caretaking of other human beings and the caretaking of the land and the caretaking of the society and communities in general are basically the ones who make it possible for revolutionary encampments to happen someone has to make the food. Someone has to bring the blankets. Someone has to actually make sure that democratic processes are um, instituted. Someone has to make sure that all the different voices are in. And a lot of that work, uh, both formally and informally, has been done by people who engage in that kind of work. And that kind of work, that affirmation of life, and that sort of sustaining of life is what I'm calling mothering in this sense.
1: Awesome. Um, so if this talk has sparked any interest in the listeners, uh, where could they learn more about it?
0: Well, there is the book, obviously. There's also another book, uh, Revolutionary Mothering Love on the Front Lines, which came out in 2016. can also be purchased at those same locations on Amazon, if you are so—or PM Press— <laughs> Um, I also am on tour at the moment. So, you know, you can, if you Google my name, M A I A Williams.net, you can find me there. Um, I don't know. Are you into Twitter? I don't really know how to, expl- how to answer that question other than, like, yeah, I exist. And if you're around Winona and you see me, we'll stun have a conversation as long as I'm not, you know, occupied.
1: Awesome. So how did you become a part of um, tonight's uh, nerd night here
0: at Ed's? I think Emily Ruff hit me up on Facebook and was like, do you want to do this? And I was like, I have nothing to talk about. She was like, you were in the paper. And I was like, good point. So and then I spent about a month and a half being like, what am I going to talk about? This talk was originally going to be about the Syrian refugee crisis, by the way. I know. It w- this was a detour. So um, that's how I just kind of went, yes. And yeah, I'm glad I did it. It was fun. It was funny to do it. You should do it. <laughs> Me? I have nothing to talk about.
1: <laughs> Others, yes. If you have anything that you nerd out on, get in contact with Eds. They'll love you. Um, so if you kind of mentioned it, if people have any questions for you, how can they contact you?
0: Yeah, um... My name is Maya Williams. It's actually spelt weirdly, so let's go with it. M-A-I apostrophe A. Williams, which is normal. Um, if you Google that, you'll, because there's only one of me, like there's no one else rocking that name. You can actually find everything. On email, it's Maya, M-A-I-A-M-E-D-I-C-I-N-E at gmail.com. Medicine at gmail.com. Also, I'm, I don't know, around. Facebook is similar. It's the same kind of thing. Um, If you're into the Insta life, we Insta things. I'm also, I mean, I'm a performance poet. So like a lot of my work is online because of that. And yeah, find me, find me.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Maya, for the interview. It was lovely talking to you and hearing you talk about this topic. It was something I've never really heard about before, so it was really interesting to see your perspective on it. Thanks again to Maya for the interview. To learn more about the books Maya published, just go on Amazon and search Maya Williams. That's M-I-A apostrophe A Williams. To stream today's episode or any other episode of Culture Click, go to kqal.org under Media Program Archives. This is KJ on Culture Click.
0: Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.
1: Culture Click is produced by KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Do you want to know about all things Winona and the surrounding area? Tune into Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here on
0: 89.5 KQAL. Culture Click is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.